Okay, uh, we're back with another episode of the Utility Strategy Podcast. And today we have Faroon Adibhatla, uh, who's, who leads Groundworks uh, Data's infrastructure practice, uh, building software, defined infrastructure planning services to realize resilience and decarbonization outcomes at local level. And we're going to talk about exactly what that means. But before that, Varun, uh, thanks for being with us today. Uh, how are you doing? Thank you, David. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm uh, doing well. Uh, it's a nice uh, chilly Wednesday morning in New York City. Um, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Good. Uh, give, us a, give us a brief. Who's uh, Varun? What have you been up to? Give, tell us about your career path. Give, give the listeners some context uh, for the conversation. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, I, I, I suppose I should say that... Um, uh, you know, I'm originally from South India. I've been in, in the United States for about um, 16 years now. Um, um, my background really is in uh, is, a, is in a variety of uh, subjects. Uh, I came to the States um, to do my master's in something called human-computer interaction, or HCI. And um, I ended up working with local law enforcement and also some aspects of the military decision-making uh, folks to study how decisions are made in group environments. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I graduated in 2008, back when, you know, when when banks were like kind of in meltdown mode, almost like, you know, today. <laughs> exactly, like today. exactly, yeah. Those of the past. Um, yeah, and I graduated then and very nervous about finding a job. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, uh, I joined a bank. Uh, you know, I think I was uh, so junior and so green at that time that it was banks were like, uh, ha, you know, it was uh, I, I tell young people even even today, it's uh, I mean, I say young people, but, you know, uh, you know, students really, because I also teach at NYU, I'm an adjunct professor at NYU start, uh, at the Center for Urban Science and Progress. Uh, it was an interesting time to enter the workforce. And, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to to start a banking job. Uh, but it was very different from where I was coming from. Um, and so I spent six years in Wall Street. Uh, and it was a bit of a roller coaster ride uh, through Wall Street. I ended up uh, 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 in high frequency trading, uh, you know, spent about two years uh, supporting the technology infrastructure that, you know, uh, powered uh, high frequency trading in foreign exchange currencies where decisions to move billions of dollars took. Um, took microseconds, uh, milliseconds. But, you know, it was interesting. All the infrastructure that it's based on is very hidden and it's a very interesting story. And I will recommend a movie uh, for your audience members. It's called The Hummingbird Project that talks about how a fiber line was laid in a straight line from New York to Chicago. Um, uh, but yes, uh, so I was spent uh, those years in Wall Street and uh, I had a bit of a change in conscience. Uh, you know, I, I read some uh, books uh, by Michael Lewis uh, uh, that made me kind of uh, rethink <laughs> my uh, banking career um, and uh, kind of shifted my attention from Wall Street to Main Street, as I like to say. I mean, you know, it's kind of a it's a joke, but I, I literally that was the pivot I made um, because at back in that time, big data was the buzzword and everybody was doing big data. And I was trying to find how I could get into the big data space. And I found this uh, NYU's uh, Center for Urban Science and Progress uh, doing a very interesting master's program 
uh, that combine data science and urban planning in and urban operations in in, a, in an interesting way. So that was 2014, and 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 you know since then I've been in the urban technology kind of domain. Um, and uh, to round off that story, I, I don't want to talk you know too much about this, but uh, I started a. a a nonprofit uh, in at CUSP along with some classmates called uh, Applied Research in Government Operations. We were all very, we're all very sort of uh, romantically thinking about smart cities and how technology can like improve smart cities. It was, it was the time when you know people were thinking about autonomous vehicles and smart roads and sensors all over the place. And I guess we were thinking slightly differently is about looking at cities and you know, municipalities and municipal managers and seeing how we can help them innovate um, using the resources that they had uh, instead of kind of leaving the innovation to some external entity, how we could build these innovation muscles inside the city, right? Um, and so that was kind of the nonprofit's mission was to help to do that. And one of the projects that we ended up doing was, um, was called SQUID, uh, or street quality identification. So this was uh, <clears throat> really a project um, to survey city streets uh, using low-cost uh, sensing devices. And so in, we, we put together a, a device um, that we put at the back of a municipal vehicle. And we, you know, we thank the city of New York and more importantly, the city of Syracuse uh, reached out to us uh, you know, to demonstrate this um, uh, to experiment on their streets and to demonstrate this technology. And we were successful in, in that pilot. <clears throat> we were able to um, survey about 500 miles of city streets in less than a week's time. Wow. Uh, wow. So, you know, and it was a big validation because at, at, our, at that time, uh, it was just the three of us in this company. Uh, and we put to, we wrote the code kind of in a very scrappy way. And we were, you know, uh, you know, putting um, uh, what do you call um, duct tape and band-aids around the situation, and like a startup. It's a say, yeah, it had, you know, definitely the startup energy and the whole startup vibes were happening, and that was back in 2016. Um, so that's where my love for streets really uh, started, right? I started kind of, um, you know, really. Uh, trying to understand the history of street maintenance, the mechanics of street maintenance, how, you know, you know, how street maintenance gets done at different levels of government. I mean, there's different street maintenance, the highways and local streets. Um, and also, uh, you know, you know, definitely street maintenance in New York City is very different from street maintenance in, in other cities. Uh, there's a big legacy and a history of how, and, and there are people who are, uh, you know, very proud of this. You Every mayor, you know, you see uh, Mayor Bloomberg, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger, Mayor de Blasio, you see that picture where they are filling a pothole. <laughs> right? So there's a there's a great kind of montage of pictures where politicians are filling potholes and they're called, you know, the pothole mayor. And so there's a whole, you know, you know, there, there's this whole kind of subculture of potholes and streets and stuff like that, that, you know, I really kind of enjoy being part of. And uh um, so, you know, I think for the past eight years, uh, in a more serious way, I've, I've been thinking about infrastructures and new ideas to how infrastructures can be uh, can be maintained, uh, because a lot of resources 
are put into in the maintenance of infrastructure. And um, I think it can be done better. I can it can be done quicker, and it can be done more cost effectively. Um, and so after Argo, I joined a company called Urbint, uh, where for three years, uh, you know, I was working very closely with gas utilities. Um, you know, some of the largest gas utilities in the country, and uh, really, it was a very, it was a privilege uh, working alongside um, uh, these folks who every day they go out, and um, you know, they're damage prevention crews, really, right? The, the damage prevention managers, uh, and and at Urban, we were using um, eight one one ticket data and doing machine learning, and and identifying which tickets are more likely to lead to a damage than others. Uh, and so it was really about supercharging this workforce that's out in the field. Uh, how, uh, how, how did you do that? Like what, uh, what risk factors are in the ticket that you, can, uh, that you can say, okay, this will help me determine whether there's, uh, there's any uh, danger here or not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, some of the, you know, the DIRT report actually has uh, so much intelligence already in, baked into that, uh, that data. Right, so the risk factors are really, you know, you it's plainly visible in the in the in the dirt. Of course, there's things that Urban does that I don't, I don't think I'm at liberty to, to talk yeah, about. Can, of course, <laughs> but uh, you know, there's it comes down it comes down to a kind of a, a set of factors that involve human behavior, right? Of course, you know, experience of the excavator, experience of the locator. So there is a human component to that, right? But there's also like a data component to that is as you as you all are very familiar, um, the lack of data, right, um, is can lead to damages in a very um, sort of uh, important way. And I've say infrastructure data in in the USA is pretty bad quality. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's not in a good quality. And I've seen this data. You know, I've been in a position where I was I've seen a lot of utility data. You've touched and, it. With yes, I've, I've I've done SQL queries on it. I've loaded it in ArcGIS, and I'm like, wow, this is like you know the, the gas network of New York City from the 1850s, and there are still pipes, you know, that are cast iron pipes from the 1850s. I remember one utility in in Illinois; they very proudly display a pipe from the days of Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, right? It's a gas pipe from the days of Abraham Lincoln, and it's active. No, it's not active. It's in their offices. Thank God. Right? <laughs> uh, but you know, they show they, they they show it as an example of the legacy that this industry is is uh, protecting. Right? It's a very uh, you know they, they're very um, proud of the work that they they do as they should be. But what I've also noticed is there's an orthodoxy in that um, in this in this industry uh, that uh, that is very um, committed to doing the doing doing things. That haven't changed in about hundred years, and and some will argue that you need to do it in this way in order to, you know, preserve the secure, secure and reliable delivery of, of of energy, uh, and so as as a startup that was um, implementing these bold new ideas in a hundred year old industry, I got to see how different managers kind of reacted to that change. Um, you know, so at Urbint, I spent really uh, three very intense years through the pandemic, working with uh, damage prevention managers uh, of all stripes. Uh, you know, 
uh, many of them would remind would, would would remind me that they have been doing damage prevention for longer than I have been alive, uh, right? <laughs> I know that a, a inexperienced damage prevention specialist has ten years of experience. I've 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 heard that sentence. <laughs> right, right. Um, but you know, it's also uh, so I you know it's kind of uh, interesting to see because. Uh, some some damage prevention managers absolutely embraced innovation and change, right? And um, you know, uh, I I know those people. I mean, I, I remember those people, and and they are people who who absolutely believe that they have to think differently in terms of how to take on the challenges of the future, right? And and now it comes to uh, my work at Groundwork is really uh, what is you know bringing kind of a you know, bringing a think a kind of twenty first century thinking to infrastructure planning, right? And uh, our, you know, it's it's kind of the twenty first century, or at least the next 50, even the next ten years demands that we make certain changes in how we think about infrastructure planning, right? Because the goals are very uh, sort of clear in front of us. It's like we need to decarbonize and we need to make our infrastructure more resilient in very in very meaningful ways. Uh, and and uh, utilities are, uh, I mean, unfortunately, uh, their thinking has not adapted to that challenge, largely. Uh, and so we, I, I want I want to to break that down for the audience. Let's talk about resilience and let's sure. talk about decarbonization, because for a lot of a lot of people, those are just buzzwords. So now we need to talk about how we make those practical. How does that fit into the day to day of anyone? who's indulging in the challenge of subsurface utilities. Yeah, thank you uh, for prompting that way. I'd say the one dig that has the multi-generational return on investment uh, is the dig where you are uh, rehabilitating sewer and water pipes uh, and you are undergrounding electric and you're putting fiber into the ground and in the same dig, right? So it's kind of a, you know, the perfect dig in some ways, right, is one that uh, is on a street where um, uh, it, it has an aging sewer and water pipes, maybe even lead pipes, right? Uh, and you see this in a lot of Michigan streets that have a lot of lead water pipes and, and kind of leaky sewer pipes. Uh, and on top of that, you have a gas infrastructure that has to reduce in some meaningful way. Um, and then you have poles, electric infrastructure that are on poles that keep coming down because of storms, right? And then you have a community that that doesn't have cheap internet or doesn't have fast internet, right? So really resilience from that street's perspective is really how do you provide resilience for the people living on that street, uh, right? So it's it's and and it's not about um it's less about the infrastructure it's more about you know you know putting the the human being in the center and saying how can this in how can this infrastructure serve these people uh over the next uh, for the next generation uh right and so that's how i define uh you know resilience is is being able to serve uh the public with an infrastructure that is not toxic, right? Um, I mean, you know, of course, 
and 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 also allows them to uh, you know the be be the best versions of themselves and that kind of you know you know glorified way is like providing cheap and fast internet uh right so and the the real sort of challenge here is all these things are happening in silos right now right so the water and sewer upgrades are happening in a silo the gas and electric debates are happening in their own silos the fiber is happening in its own silo the broadband of uh, of the broadband efforts and you know the the the, the sort of challenge there is that each of those like 90% of that work is trenching right and i mean i wouldn't say 90% 90% of the costs of that that based on you know based on the data that i've seen at least is digging up the road uh like opening a trench digging up the road doing all these activities uh and then closing the trench and do, and the, the reality of today's infrastructure is that we're doing it five times right to to do the you know to kind of put in the same infrastructure which is a you know a very uh, slow way of doing it it delays progress uh right um so i th- to answer your question i'd say uh, to your post uh, on linkedin of uh, why is New York always under construction? Because we have the gas lines coming to do the maintenance and repairs, and then we have the water and sewage uh, coming to do the maintenance and repairs, and then we have the electric, and we have uh, 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 the fiber or whatever it is. But it's yeah. just, and, and it never ends. Like you see the same trench open 12 months a year. Exactly. And you know, and um, you know, here in New York, it's kind of we've kind of, we've kind of tuned that noise away, right? It's kind of part of city life. We've kind of normalized dysfunction in in, in you know in a in a in a in a in a way, and I'm kind of challenging that and saying, no, this is not this is not normal, mm-hmm. uh, right? And there should be a new normal. And what does the new normal look like? Uh, you know, uh, it involves sharing data it involves having us uh, it involves transparency to some uh, extent uh, right to a to a reasonable extent right it's uh, it involves using uh, new technology in in responsible ways right i think there is uh, whenever it comes to technology implementation i think utilities have a certain bias uh, towards um, implementing like you know very expensive technologies that don't scale very well right so i've heard stories where utilities like to um they like to take helicopter rides uh you know to to kind of inspect their uh, yeah. their infrastructure right yeah. uh, and and when you could do that with uh with you know with the deployment of some sensors uh right you could reuse data i think some you know you know you know for m is an interesting kind of you know the the way that you guys have brought satellite imagery into this space right is testament of to the fact that really in a world where data was not being shared and we were waiting 72 hours for a locate to be completed right this is the blockbuster world in my opinion right this is this is where the, the everybody was used to a world that they have to wait many days to get a dvd and you have to go to some place and get a dvd and nobody was thinking about the streaming world right nope. and and so I, i in many ways i do equate kind of 4m like uh, innovations to um, to the netflix of infrastructure data 
I, right. I prefer you saying that. For for our listeners, I did, we did not pay Varun to say this. So. <laughs> but, but it's the kind of innovation that I think is required to help uh, localities, uh, you know, to, to get them to think um, uh, that in diff- kind of differently uh, um, and, and help them, uh, you know, you know, help them serve their communities in a way that was not possible before. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, there's a story about uh, Blockbuster that uh, when they had the opportunity, if I'm not mistaken, to uh, to acquire Netflix and they uh, did research yeah. uh, and they the research came and said that people actually like going to the store and buying the video because they get the opportunity to see their neighbors and their friends and there's like there's that human interaction there. And then I don't remember who the guys who I saw explaining this on stage, but he kind of said, you know what people like more? Sitting at home, not moving from their couch and just flipping the switch. That's what they like much more. Yep. So, and I think that uh, like connecting it to uh, the world that we live in today, 2023, that uh, I don't think we have the privilege anymore to to take time to do the things that are pretty straightforward to do. I don't know, that sounded maybe a bit a bit too high level, but it just doesn't make sense anymore that we need to wait 72 hours, 48 hours, however much it is, before we go to start dig when there's an abundance of data out there. And at like um, in the, we had an event with Texas 811 two weeks ago, uh, I'm telling our listeners, you were, you were online, of course, uh, but our CEO gave a great example and he said that imagine that every time you get into your car and you want to drive somewhere, you need to call a one call, right? And they need to send out a team of locators to go and mark the road between Austin and Dallas just to make sure that the road is safe. And then after they finish marking, then you can start driving. In a world with Google Maps, Waze, or whichever navigating app you prefer, that is that you can't even imagine a reality a reality like that. Yeah. And I'd say it's the same with uh, with damage prevention. Like we're it's 2023. We need to get with the program. Yes, uh, absolutely. I love that uh, analogy. And I'd say even uh, I, I, my analogy was at the TSA, right? The uh, when you're taking a flight uh you're waiting in line of course you know as, as a new yorker i will say that i'm waiting in a line is the worst thing that you could ask any new no, yorker so. <laughs> right? so we are especially uh you know um, very averse to waiting in lines right uh, yeah. but you know you have to move at the pace of uh, the change that is required of us and um you know, the reality is that, yes, even in when you're waiting, uh, you know, the TSA did a very interesting study about the economic impact of pre-check, right? Um, you know, there is this pre-check. Uh, so the TSA introduced pre-check as a way for travelers to pre-check, and then you can just breeze through the lines. Of course, there is a, you you pay a fee, right? And that fee is getting paid to the, the, the you know, is, is getting paid to kind of uh, fund the TSA to some extent, right? And so, you know, I think that can be in some interesting ways can be implemented in the uh, in the construction in this infrastructure sector where, uh, you know, uh, 
large volume construct uh, excavators can pay a fee uh, to get uh, data uh, and and be able to expedite their their construction activities in a safe while also ensuring that you're not having any kind of uh, issues with safety. Uh, right. So I think there is a path there and uh, you're That's absolutely right. Fascinating. How, how do you imagine that? Like if I want to like uh, turn it into something practical for a second. So, for example, we have, uh, like you said, a large volume excavator or let's let's say a GC because the excavator always reports to someone. I will never be the guy in the in the excavator who is really the uh, the decision maker. Uh, but then we have this we have this GC with a large number of tickets uh, per year, okay. and then what do you imagine them doing? They do they pay to the to the one call? Do they pay to the utility owners? Because like yep. the reason why I'm, I'm making it difficult for you is because our industry is so fragmented. Like yeah. the one call and some and is somewhat meant to kind of. Uh, uh, centralize all the utility data that we have out there, but the in some cases they do a very good job, and uh, and in some cases they don't, and which is also like a, a fragment of the of the industry. So, how do you envision that happening in such a challenging ecosystem? Yeah, I actually, you know, this is not a pie in the sky sort of idea. It's already being implemented in some respects. I find the city of Chicago uh, an exception to the 811 community. They're typically, if you look at the history of 811 legislation, right, it was states uh, that that coordinated this activity, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which is really 90, I would say 90, 90% of excavations are happening at the city level, right? So the fact that this is a state entity to begin with is sort of problematic, 811. Right. Uh, so what Chicago did uh, very interestingly is they municipalized their 811. So the city of Chicago has a different 811. The state of Illinois has a different 811. Right. Julie 811 is uh, uh, Julie is for the uh, and all these 811s have beautiful names by the Michigan has Miss Dig. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I like it. Very nice. Every 811 has its own, you know, state uh, character. Yeah. But I think Chicago uh, did something very interesting in the in the early '90s, uh, where they municipalized their 811. And what excavators are required to do there is that they have to s- submit a SUE, subutility sue engineering plan. They have to uh, submit uh, their plans to the Office of Underground Coordination or the Office of Underground Protection, right? And only then will they be able to create an 811 ticket. Wow. Okay. Wow. So that yeah. is advanced. It's very advanced. Um, and, uh, you know, you asked me, who should I recommend uh, as a your next guest? Uh, sorry if I'm kind we of... I didn't ask you yet, but I, but I always ask. So if we can take it now. Yeah. <laughs> there's a Jay Kayalil, if I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name uh, correctly. He, he works at the uh, Chicago 811. And he has uh, written very in a very detailed way about how Chicago 811 uh, came about uh, and how they work with the Office of uh, Underground Protection. Um, uh, so I would recommend you know speaking with him. But I I find that introduction afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. And you know even the locators in Chicago, you know it was a very tight knit community uh, where the locators in Chicago were actually maintaining a database of all their locates. 
right? <clears throat> yes. Is that is that wait? But when you say the locator is in Chicago, so is that one company, or is, is that just USIC, or is that USIC Stake Center and all the other small ones together maintaining a database of Chicago? It was one company that was doing it. I believe their name was called HBK Engineering. They were recently acquired by Quanta. Uh, and H HBK, they have these uh, some in an interesting video out there that talk about how after every time they did a locate, they preserve the result of that locate in a database so that the next time they have to do it, they don't need to repeat those same tasks. They know they have a clear idea of where that uh, that asset was in the ground, right? And it makes future locates quicker. Uh, and so over time, they built this database pretty much, you know, covering most of Chicago, uh, you know, with, with very detailed sort of uh, understanding about their underground assets. How did, how did they do it? Like, was it an ArcGIS type of thing or what was it? I've never been able to dig, no, well, pun intended. You got me. I, this is the, I mean, it took so this long for me to say it, but yes, um, I've never double clicked on the infrastructure that's supporting that. But, you know, coming back to your question about how how would we manifest this pre-check sort of situation, the, the really it, 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 it requires a centralization of asset data, right? Uh, a secure centralized repository of asset data and then some sort of back and forth with uh, the locators who are who are locating and then saying, hey, you know, the database said this asset was in this location, but when I'm doing my locate, I find it it's kind of about two feet, you know, you know, lateral here. Um, I think I'm going to submit an update to this. Uh, and over time, you're 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 improving that database. Uh, with every locate, you're improving the database. Tell me, have you seen other databases like that? Like other cities doing something uh, similar or other organizations that have kind of said, hey, we're doing this uh, manually intensive, repetitive labor. Like we're sending out locators to the same spot time and time again. Uh, how do we make this more efficient, more productive uh, for ProSAL company and the uh, customers that we're working with? Yes. So, uh, you know, thank you to the late, Jeff Zeiss uh, for uh, being being this uh, Gandalf. You know, I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, but he, for me, is kind of like this Gandalf figure of infrastructure, right? He constantly, for years and years, he would talk about innovation and blog about it. And, you know, somebody who was... Between the polls, for those of you who are not familiar, go to his blog, uh, just Google Between the Polls. Lots of very quality content about the challenge of subsurface utilities and in general, uh, uh, how to geo-reference them and use them in a modern day engineering environment. Yeah. And I think it was his research that uh, that led me to knowing about these different um, uh, implementations of these ideas. Uh, I would I would probably, you know, I, this may, my, I may be incorrect in saying that, or I'd say the first implementation of something similar here was Jap Japan. Uh, in the 1980s uh, with their RODIC or RODIS system or road information system uh, where they had a centralized database. Of course, you know, in the Japanese context, 
a lot of their uh, planning is centralized and top down to some extent uh, in a way that's not in the united states uh, but i i you know the, the the concept the technical architecture is very clear in the rodex system uh, right where they have this they articulate this database of all utility and road works and they coordinate all the utility and road works and so once you you know so i would encourage your uh, your audience to go and uh, uh, seek that paper out. I'm happy to provide it as a link after. Uh, but it, in, in the 1980s, very in the recent uh, and right now, what's happening? The most exciting changes that are happening at scale, I would say, is in the United Kingdom. Uh, the Newar, yeah, the National Underground Asset Register, and also the City of London and the City of Croydon are doing something called the Infrastructure Coordination Service (ICS). Um, and they have an application that really it's kind of, again, folks in the military may be familiar with this term. It's a common operating picture, uh, right? So this is a concept. This is jargon. Uh, you know, for you know, people who are aware call it COP, uh, COP. But this COP is a is a simple idea. It's this idea that you need to have one single visual artifact that contains relevant data for different stakeholders to do their work. Uh, so it's the same map, one map for everyone, uh, right? And you can toggle the different layers and the data behind it is constantly updated. Of course, uh, you know, Singapore has been doing this for many, many, many years already. Their one map initiative uh, has been doing this for a, for a very long time. Uh, so I'd say Europe in general, there are countries in Europe, uh, the Scotland and the Vault system is doing this. Um, uh, you know, Denmark is doing this in interesting ways. Uh, but yeah, the, the, they're all following the same pattern, which is have a repository of asset data that is uh, shared, right? It's uh, When I say it's shared, is um, it's very different from where the United States is right now because... Uh, Unless you are a well-funded startup, you don't get access to utility data. I say that because, you know, Urbent was a well-funded startup and uh, we had access to utility data. But I think uh, responsible individuals and individuals who've gone through some sort of certification uh, should be given access to, uh, you know, asset data as well. Uh, and so that's where I think the reform of 811 can be reformed in a way that allows for, uh, you know, better sharing uh, of, of infrastructure data, but also better infrastructure data quality. Uh, because I know a lot of utilities, they don't want to share because they're scared that people will find out that the data is so bad, <laughs> right? And so how do you improve really it? Have points. People are afraid to share the data because they're afraid it's going to find their people are going to find out it's so terrible. Exactly. And talk about that. You're so you're on point. And I'm saying this is not a unique insight. This is in this is insight that I bring from uh, open data. Uh, you know, the, so this is where my work at at CUSP uh, or NYU uh, and New York City. This is whole open data movement that that was uh, happening at the municipal level where these battles were fought about 10 years ago, right? It's like city agencies did not want to release their data because their data was a poor quality to begin with. 
but you have local advocates who said you know it's okay we'll figure out a way to kind of work with you to improve your data but just start sharing it right uh and of course you know i i just want to say that when when people hear this especially people outside of new york city hear this they they bring up the national security card right uh, you know and uh, i'll i'd like to say a few things if that's okay about to respond to that concern um look i became a citizen of the united states uh, uh, re- recently uh, right i have deep love for this country <laughs> thank you for its infrastructure and uh, i think uh, in many ways the infrastructure of this country attracted people like me to 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 come here to begin with right and to see that infrastructure deteriorate as kind of seeing that dream kind of erode away in in some meaningful way right so when i'm when i'm when i see people oh we can't share data because of national security you know it it kind of hurts me at a soul level right uh because um i understand the argument and and you know i also i'm very sensitive to it uh you know because you know i have uh, many uh, uh friends who lived through 911 uh here in new york city and um you know it is something it is a serious thing to consider obviously and you don't want to you don't want to dismiss it off right you can't, uh, take, you can't take chances of course but i think we can do the, knowing what i know about data right i think data can be shared in a way that is uh you know um uh, easily auditable uh and so that you have a kind of a paper trail as to who asked for what data uh and make sure that there are checks and balances in place this is the whole reason uh, why we you know why we talk about checks and balances is to enable innovation is to allow innovation uh, but put some meaningful guardrails and i think if we do that i think that's what when when we say national security i also want to say usic is a company that's 50% owned by a swiss private equity uh right so and in usic is and until recent, i mean now they are 50% owned but but two years ago they were almost 100% owned by a foreign entity right and to to and and this is not an untrue fact but usic is the single entity with the most infrastructure data of the united states outside of the department of homeland security and maybe federal government you have usic that holds on to the most infrastructure data in the country right so i think people who 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 are using national security argument need to consider that fact uh right when they say national security um and also i'd say uh, uh you know another aspect of national security is we have a damage rate that uh, in some states is ridiculous right and it's like five damages per 1000 tickets um which is you know it it it's a yeah. it's a that is you know tolerating that damage rate is the real threat to 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 national security not this kind of boogeyman uh, you know sort of like a, a scenario where somebody will log into a database take the infrastructure and 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 kind of uh, do bad things to that infrastructure that being said there have been cases of that i mean i don't want to dismiss it off and say it happened recently people damaging uh, grids i think we yes. had that in uh, can remember uh, nisco state if i'm not mistaken 
but you know, I, I want I want to add to the national security argument because two years ago I was at uh, CGA, uh, their their national event in uh, Orlando, Florida. Was there too? And, but what? Yeah, I was there too. So so we probably uh, missed each other. <laughs> But, but uh, and and uh, I can't remember the exact title of the event, but everyone was talking about one source of truth, one map for everyone, all the stakeholders to work on. And then they actually had a session to discuss it. And uh, I think her name is Sarah, the CEO of uh, of CGA, and she was on stage, and she got asked by uh, by one of the GCs in the room. And he said, but what happens if a bad actor gets their hand on uh, this, this national uh, uh, repository of utility data? And she answered, and quite frankly, that the data is out there. The yeah. data is not a secret anymore. It's not guarded. And even if it is guarded, it's guarded poorly. Yes. So if a bad actor decides that he wants to get his hands uh, on um, on utility data that is of critical infrastructure, there's nothing stopping them today. Nothing. And that, so now the question, and that I think goes back to the numbers that you just stated, is that the five in a thousand damages, yeah. per, per, it's it's unthinkable. And that is the that is the real threat. You know that they teach you in the military, like the the uh, to. To decide, you need to decide on which threat you're going to focus. Yes. And the biggest threat is the one that you can see and that is happening often, right? And that, that's what we're seeing here. It's not what you can or can't see and you're not sure if it's going to happen. It may happen. That's possible. You need to prepare for that. And I'm not saying be a, a, a like I'm not trying to encourage any mal malpractice or something like that. But But I'm saying that there's, there's you know, a you know, here and now. That's what I'm yeah. saying. There is a risk framework. I think that, you know, there is a risk framework here that is meaningful, which is, you know, risk is always a factor of consequence and likelihood, right? So, you know, there is an equation. I mean, NASA uses something called the risk matrix to calculate risks when they're launching rockets into space, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, came up with the risk matrix. I'd, I'd encourage you to, I'd, I'll leave you with that link as well. Um, it's a way to evaluate these risks, uh, right? And to evaluate, of course, you know, when you launch a rocket, a million things can go wrong, right? Including some nameless uh, bad actor coming and destroying the rocket, right? That can also be part of your risk framework. Yeah. But how do you you know, you still need to launch the rocket, right? You can't just say, okay, there is this low, very low probability, but high consequence event. And because that event exists, we're not going to launch this rocket, right? Uh, so you, you have to assign, you know, data to this, right? You have to bring data into this conversation and kind of remove emotions to some extent to this and say, how do you evaluate these risks in an objective way? Right, and if these risks are indeed, uh, you know, high probability, the probability changes. Right, how are you going to respond to these risks? Right, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I've not served in the military, but I've uh, and I and I use a lot of military metaphors because I know the utility industry 
is a lot a lot of folks from the military serve wow. in the industry mm-hmm. yeah you know there's an interesting concept the us army uses called overmatch uh right is you have to be in a state of overmatch right the us army is using uh, uh, artificial intelligence to 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 monitor the probabilities the risk profile a uh, constant monitoring of the risk profile in order to respond and and maintain a state of overmatch right and i think these kind of concepts if you need to bring into civilian life and civilian infrastructure to protect this infrastructure against any kind of threat whether it be natural whether it be man made uh, you know or it be accidents also uh so i think there are these concepts that the military you, i you know i speak to you know I, i one of the things i tell uh i used to tell the utility damage prevention people is like look you're going to battle every day right you're going to battle against risk every day right you are the five star general you are the four star five star general right mm-hmm. my role when i was in urban i was the intelligence analyst sitting in a corner chunking through the data and telling you where to point your your guns yeah. right where to point your guns to eliminate risk right and that's that when i started you know when i start for a long time it was very hard for me i mean for me to have conversations with damage prevention managers um but uh when i started this conversation about how they're going to battle with risk every day the conversation changed i think i may, I, i think for some people i i was able to manufacture some amount of trust right because if they see me who is this guy you know this guy with a funny accent coming from new york city telling me how to do things right but but when i tell them look i understand i don't know how to do your job but i know how it can how you can do it better and faster using data right and that's kind of that's you know my role is to help you supercharge your experience and put your experience to work and not make sure that this experience becomes orthodoxy because that's where that's my big critique of the uh, industry right now is that everybody says i have 35 35 35 40 years of experience it me for me what i hear is they are more they are just following orthodox ways of doing the same things uh you know and uh and i i would rather go to battle with somebody who wants the best intelligence out there you know that's kind of my perspective on on how to protect civilian infrastructure so i have a, i have a, a question about that i think when you talk to the guys in the field uh the damage prevention managers and specialists the guys who are actually doing the Uh, either the locating or making sure that locating is being done right they are very passionate about their work very yep. very passionate yeah but when you take the conversation to the level above them and it depends on the company sometimes that's uh, on the finance or network operations or whatever that is the conversation starts to turn into Okay, how much how much money are you saving me? Right. Right. So how do you make that case? You know, um with definitely any damage that is prevented is real dollars, right? No doubt about that. But you know, increasingly the that 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 financial conversation changes when you're a gas company 
and when when you're a telco company or a fiber company right you know there's a very interesting game that is being played when in the ticket game it's called the ticket suppression right where um, you know the telecom uh, utilities they sometimes um, you know they have a tolerance they have a risk uh, tolerance that's very different from the gas utilities yeah. for for them they want to avoid utility locates that really don't that have a low probability of striking their infrastructure they yeah. don't even pay the locator right yeah. so they basically have developed a, a fairly sophisticated way of suppressing tickets so yeah. that they are reducing the spend on the locator right uh, so that game is a game that the gas people cannot play because right? people can die if they uh, if they strike a pipeline and if they strike a uh, up a fiber line so well it's huge loss in uh, in uh, in capital for uh, AT&T yeah. Verizon or wherever it is but no one's going to die from cutting a, a fiber line well you know the most serious uh, 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 fiber ex- uh, damage that happened was during the 2020 elections where mm. the the Virginia Department of Elections their their fiber trunk got cut during voting early mm-hmm. voting yeah wow i didn't know yeah. that how and, what was the story how did it happen a sewer excavation and yeah. they were working on election day they were working well they were working this was this was early voting yeah i mean look infrastructure folks they any and you know they they say that um, you know yeah, yeah. day and night is a week yeah you know so and there's no there's no uh, kind of holidays uh, when it comes to infrastructure um but you know that was i think you know i i don't want to dismiss uh, any aspect of risk when it comes to any infrastructure we are moving into a world where we expect uninterrupted electricity and uninterrupted internet like for example if the internet went off over here this podcast would be done right yeah. uh, and so yeah but but to your point about the financial costs i think i think a lot of the financial discussion now is very much about direct costs it's not it, it, it it's not about indirect costs of of this so there's a lot of indirect costs is not accounted for uh, right so a lot of these conversations at the cfo level uh is happening it's again a very siloed conversation is what is my loss here i don't care about what other people lose what is my loss here right and so yeah. when you start thinking uh, at in the siloed way it comes very difficult to to kind of work towards change a system because really the what needs to happen is the system needs to change right but the actors inside the system are very self interested actors so i'm there's a bit of a game theory sort of perspective here right where i'm sure other uh, uh, smart people smarter than uh, than me would be able to say that there's a game theory outcome here that requires a system to change where uh, unless the system changes in uh, in, in, a, in a kind of a meaningful way you're always going to have the telco people being very self interested about their infrastructure and you know uh and the gas people being very self interested in their infrastructure i'll say the last point this issue gets even worse because of the monopoly in the utility locating space you know the telcos can lead can reform 811 but 
they are held captive to a single company and their single prices, right? One and a half companies. One and a half companies, right? Yeah. So you know, they're 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 the the telecom companies are mostly held captive on the ticketing side. Is that yeah. hey, if, if that the way. price goes up by a uh, fifty cents, you know, and they're doing tens of millions of locates every year, and even a fifty cent increase will lead to a big change in their financial, uh, you know, outlook of locating. So I, I haven't verified this, but um, you called it uh, ticket suppressing. Uh, I, I know it is a ticket screening. We may, we may be talking about the yeah, same thing. So I heard that uh, once ticket screening started, so what the locating companies did is, well, I'm not going to lose that capital. So they just upped the cost per ticket. And there's still, I think the number is, uh, I'm not sure, but $100 per ticket. Uh, and they wanted to keep it that way. So it yeah. makes sense for them economically from a business perspective, which I respect, right? That's how the how the game works. But it's like you said, the facility owners, utility owners, they're being uh, held, held captive, captive by this monopoly. Yep. Yeah. And I think that that we need to have a serious conversation about that. Uh, you know, I think uh, uh, in some ways, uh, you know, the government. I, I would involve the government and say there is anti-competitive sort of behavior happening over here, and uh, this needs to be looked at uh, in a serious way. Again, I have no beef with the uh, the individual locators. They are heroes yeah, in my. They're right? the front line. Yeah, they are the front line and they do, they provide a very critical service, right? Yeah. The system is ultimately designed in a way that they it, it leads, there's a misalignment of incentives ultimately. And you have different incentives kind of coming and crashing with each other. And ultimately the losers are you and me, like the, the rate payers are the losers, right? The people yeah. who are paying uh, the bills, the utility bills, are eventually paying for this uh, lack of coordination. That's very interesting. I think that there's, it's funny, like I didn't realize that balance of power. I always thought that the utility owners were uh, holding 811 hostage, so to speak. And the way that you put it is, uh, it gives me a, a new perspective on the industry and what needs to change because there is, uh, we have a system in place that was built in the seventies and eighties for, yep. I think, and this is my, my, uh, my analysis and, and from the research that I've done to, to preserve the, um, the confidentiality of the utility data so that utility owners won't be able to tell from a comp competitive standpoint what the other is doing. Right. And we've come to a point where that no longer makes sense because they all know what, what, they're, what the other is doing. Yeah. And now the system is slowing them down from expanding their networks yeah. and maintaining their networks. And the question is, who are going to be the first utility owners to say, you know what, here's my data. Dear world, this is my data. Take it and use it as you see fit. 
you know, I love that prompt, David, because I've seen that happen in the water world in California. So in yeah. 20, yeah, in 2016, uh, it's, it's crazy how times change. 2016, California was seeing a very, very tough drought uh, situation. Right. And uh, the nonprofit that my uh, my colleagues and I started, our mission was to get all the water utilities and they are municipal utilities, water utilities, uh, get them all in one room and talk, advocate for sharing data. Right. Uh, and we, you know, it was kind of I feel deja vu now because we had the same conversation. I was in a room with all these water utilities in California and they were saying, what do we need to do to beat this drought? Right, because the governor of California at that time was um, was basically telling the utilities, "You need to reduce your consumption by twenty percent; otherwise, the state will be dry." Right, no and, yeah. and really, one of the solutions was let's share data. Right, and so there is this entity that I think um, it's not; it's less about putting your data there. There needs there is this very well established entity called Data Collaborative. Right. And, and the California Data Collaborative right now does that for water utilities. They, they are stewards of data. Right. They make sure that all the utilities have a safe place uh, to store their data and then do research and do interesting things with that data. It is a clearinghouse for water data in California um, in order to do innovation and research and things of that nature. I think here's where there's an opportunity to rethink, you know, I'll say um, to rethink 811, uh, you know, to, to, to borrow an expression from the current administration. This is build back better. You can build 811 back better, right? I think there's a great, there's a great opportunity that's that's yeah. waiting to, to, to do that for 811 uh, and, and be stewards of asset data uh, as opposed to being stuck in an old way or or, or kind of thinking in a very limited uh, way, uh, you know. And there are I don't want I don't want to again, eight one one. I don't want to point the finger and say eight one one is bad. Um, oh, some- they're, they're integral and integral part of the solution. Yeah. No yeah. doubt about it. Yeah, uh, I want to give a shout out to some um, some of the more creative eight one ones out there. Pennsylvania 811 has done some really interesting thing. They have developed a software called Coordinate PA that helps utilities coordinate uh, using the ticket, the Pennsylvania one call ticket, right? So that's digs between them. Yeah, coordinate digs. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. There's you know you have these pockets of innovation, uh, and really that's my job, right? Is to not is to just point a finger at kind of like orthodoxy, but also show that there are these people who have spent their entire careers thinking about how to make the system better, right? And really, I see my job is to kind of say, look, look at this person who has done this great work. Why can't this be scaled up uh, to the entire country? Or even like, you know, I'd say, I think we talked about this, is uh, I think it should be normal for 811 to use satellite imagery to locate utilities, right? I think it should be normal. Uh, and, I think, and I think you guys are kind of showing what is new and innovative. But the, tru- the truth with utilities is that, hey, 100 years ago, 
this in industry was the tip of innovation right there was new innovation coming almost every year for about 20 years non stop and suddenly stopped nothing happened right uh so i think you know i really think this is something where we can bring innovation to to uh, in a way to maintain our infrastructure much better uh in, in a different way Arun, this was a, a fascinating 60 minutes. I was, uh, I, I need to, I need to do some homework. I think we're going to have another, we're going to have another episode. Uh, uh, <laughs> I've been writing down while the, while, while we were talking uh, different points that I need to go research and I need to, need to go uh, Google, but I, I'll end with the, Was the following note you you said pockets of innovation and it's funny because I, I recently uh, two days ago I read a five-year-old uh, article from McKinsey and they were talking about um, they were talking about the state of productivity in construction and they were kind of saying how the productivity in construction is flatlined while other industries are kind of uh, uh, going up like and they equivalent they compared it to manufacturing which is also a traditional industry and kind of showed how in between 95 and uh, 2014 I want to say I'll check afterwards but uh, 2014 uh, manufacturing has made amazing strides and mm -hmm. they talk about it that a lot of it is is based on on data and technology and And I think we just haven't seen that peak yet in the construction. And because the utilities are dependent on uh, construction, both for maintenance and network expansion, so their innovation in, these, uh, in this ecosystem is, for now, limited. But I, and going back to what you said, there are pockets of innovation. So there is hope. And oh, I, yeah. think, no. I think we'll end uh, with that. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll just say you you are such a great host David because you're bringing ah, out these, you know you're bringing out these things I'd say the building sector is a very interesting sector to look at from an from the evolution of innovation uh, and how data has been standardized in the building sector in a way that if it was done in the utility sector you could unleash a lot of innovation Maroon. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, so much, so much. We're going to have another one um, uh, to, to discuss more and maybe, like you said, double click into some of these. Uh, but for now, I want to thank you. And uh, uh, I'm sure that the listeners, our audience has had a fascinating 60 minutes and they'll have to wait for the sequel. So, All right. Cool. Thank you, David. Thank you. Take care.